Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have presented voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's forum. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on up upcoming town hall forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today. Dr. Peter Wallenstein is the Dag Hammarskjöld Professor of Peace and Conflict Resolution Research at Uppsala University. He has traveled from Sweden to be with us today to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the birth of Dag Hammarskjöld, the distinguished statesman, diplomat, and secretary general of the United Nations from 1953 to 1961. Dr. Wallenstein is widely recognized as an expert on the origins of war, conflict theory and resolution, and global systems and governance. He has been a visiting professor in the Department of Political Science at Yale University, the University of Michigan, University of Tübingen, and the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. He is the author of numerous books, including Understanding Conflict Resolution, War, Peace, and the Global System, The Origins of War, Conflict Theory, and Conflict Res Re Research, and Structures of the Global System. In his presentation, Peacemaking, Lessons from Dag Hammarskjöld. Dr. Wallenstein will provide insight into Dag Hammarskjöld's legacy of peacemaking, mediation, and diplomacy, as well as the implications of his work for our world today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Peter Wallenstein. It's a great pleasure <clears throat> to be here and uh, be here on the year which marks the 100th anniversary of Dag Hammarskjöld. If we go back to 1953, United Nations was in a crisis. To be a peacemaking organization, the United Nations is often in a crisis. In March 1953, the problem was how to elect a new Secretary General. Uh, the Norwegian Trygvili was an outgoing Secretary General, and the Security Council had for a long time delivered about different names. Uh, they had not been able to find anybody who would like to take up the job. They had not found anybody that they were united around. In this situation, in March 1953, the British and the French delegates suggest a name, Dag Hammarskjöld. They had met him in the negotiations on the reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War. He was an economist. He was a distinguished um, civil servant in the Swedish uh, Minister for Finance and the Minister for Foreign Affairs. And they now proposed his name. Um, of course, uh, everybody adjourned. They came back the ne next day. And the Soviet delegate said, well, we have checked on this Mr. Hammarskjöld. We find him too old. Everybody was a bit uh, surprised. Uh, he was 47. Uh, and <clears throat> but it turned out that the man that the KGB had in his archive was his father, Yalmar Hammarskjöld. <laughs> Yalmar Hammarskjöld at this time was 93. 
So once this had been sorted out, uh, the Security Council agreed to elect Dag Hammarskjöld, and then they asked him if he was available. Now they had learned their lesson, and so Hammarskjöld suddenly gets this rather surprising question. And in uh, the markings, the way mark, Vägmärken in Swedish, uh, you can see that he writes about it and he says, I said yes. Now this was a very surprising uh, development. Hammarskjöld was not known in the international settings outside the European economists, basically. Uh, but in about a day or so, he learned a lot about the United Nations. They congregated a, a press conference in Stockholm, uh, and there he made his debut as a Secretary General. And it turned out to know everything about the United Nations. Some of his colleagues say he must have spent the last 24 hours reading at least three or four books on the theme. Uh, and that is definitely his mark, an incredible receptivity, an incredible ability to analyze material and find a way out. So I think there are ample reasons today to discuss what can be learned from this remarkable personality. Those eight years that he was at the helm of the United Nations remain legendary, and you will find even the present Secretary General often going back to Dag Hammarskjöld, even asking himself in a particular situation, what would Hammarskjöld have done? So I'll point to three issues I think Hammarskjöld have left for us to ponder today and for the future of the United Nations and for the future, basically, of international peace and security. The first is a concept that was invented by Hammarskjöld, preventive diplomacy. Preventive diplomacy meant that we should try to act early in conflicts and crises. We should not let them foster, fester and become difficult, entrenched, a lot of people being killed, and the more a conflict goes on, the more protected, the more difficult. If we act early in the crisis, we are able to find solutions before positions are cemented in various impossible positions. Uh, he uh, learned this, in a way, uh, by trial and error. One of the first crises that he faced was the situation of 11 U.S. airmen being captured by the Chinese authorities in what was then described as Red China or Communist China. This took place in 1954. As always, of course, the American public becomes very upset. Uh, the media is uh, in full gear. Uh, and the question is, what is the American government going to do? The Eisenhower administration looks around for options. Now, one does not have diplomatic relations with China at this time. We are talking about the People's Republic of China. The US position is to uh, recognize only the Republic of China, which at this time is in Taiwan. Uh, there are not many friendly ways of establishing contact. But one reminds oneself that these pilots were actually under UN auspices. They were flying in, in and out of Korea, and of course the operation in Korea was formally at least under a UN command. So Eisenhower, I think with a certain satisfaction, says, well, this is a matter for the United Nations, not the United States. So the task is put on Hammarskjöld to deal with this very intricate issue. And you can say that this is high risk for the young world organization to try to do something about it. Uh, 
Hammarskjöld does something that he has continued to do after that. He goes to Beijing and he can do that in, in, in the strength of his own office as Secretary General. He's not necessarily representing the Security Council or the General Assembly. He has a special own chapter, an own section in the UN Charter which gives him that kind of autonomy. So he approaches uh, the leader in China, or the, you can say the operative leader, Mr. Zhao Enlai, and is welcomed. In January 1955, he finds himself for a week uh, in negotiations with Zhao Enlai. Uh, Zhao Enlai, of course, is a communist. He uh, has, as Hammarskjöld says himself, a lot of blood on his hands, but he is also a very educated person. And so is Hammarskjöld. You can uh, see here across the civilizations two fairly similar characters interested in philosophy, interested in history, interested in how societies develop. Certainly their political conclusions are contrary, but it still makes a discussion. Many of the reports from there suggest that a certain chemistry is established between Hammarskjöld and Joe Enlai. After the week in Beijing, uh, he comes back, he flies into San Francisco, and the media, of course, immediately ask him, well, Mr. Hammarskjöld, where are the pilots? And he has no pilots. His idea is that the pilots shall be freed as a gesture of friendship when American families are visiting their imprisoned members of the family in Beijing. But that is blocked by the US administration, which is not willing to issue a visa for that kind of a travel. So the whole thing seems to be in an impasse until we arrive in the south of Sweden on the 29th of July, 1955. Now, if you recall that Hammarskjöld was born in 1950, 1905, you will see by 1955 he is 50 years old. A postman, or actually a postwoman, comes on her bicycle to the summer cottage where Hammarskjöld is and delivers a telegram. It's a telegram from Beijing. It's a telegram from Zhao Enlai. Zhao Enlai says that he would like to congratulate Hammarskjöld on his 50th birthday and inform him that the, the Chinese authorities have now agreed to release the American prisoners. Uh, there are many unusual gifts when you, when you are 50, but this is one of the more unusual, isn't it? <laughs> now this, of course, changes the attitude. Instead of asking in a nasty way, where are the pilots, the slogan becomes a different one. Leave it to dog. Uh, and Hammarskjöld from there on gets a number of assignments to deal with the conflict issues around the world involving the US but also others. And that's how we get the practice of preventive diplomacy. Go to the scene, visit, talk to the leaders, establish contact, develop confidence, come up with possible solutions. And his record is rather remarkable in the way he managed to solve a number of conflicts. Now today, of course, the world looks a bit different. Uh, in our record, we have observed that since 1989, since the end of the Cold War, there has been 119 small or large wars in the world. It's a rather incredible record. They all, of course, require a lot of preventive act action, and particularly to make sure that even if they are brought to a standstill, make sure that they are solved and not returning. And if you go to the latest document published by the United Nations 
on this issue, the World Summit meeting in New York in September. Uh, you will see that preventive diplomacy is mentioned, and you will see that one is now planning to establish a new kind of commission, a peace-building commission, which will be operative by 1st of January 2006. That's not a long time far away from now. Which will try to deal in a preventive way with conflicts, to make sure that once they have ended, they do not reoccur. And here are definitely applications of the principles that Hammarskjöld exposed a long time ago. A second achievement, of course, is the peacekeeping operations. Here, uh, of course, we Swedes have to admit that there is a bit of a dispute who came up with this idea. Canada is also arguing that this was Lester Pearson's idea. Uh, indeed, the document will say us that Lester Pearson, as the Canadian foreign minister, had that idea in the early phase of the Suez crisis in 1956. But it was Hammarskjöld that formulated the principles for how such peacekeeping operations were to be done. So rather than seeing this as an international peaceful competition, it's actually an example of peaceful cooperation. The idea was to interpose neutral forces between the fighting sides, to stop the fighting and give space for negotiations. That was tried in the Suez crisis in 1956. Uh, with very intricate negotiations where Hammarskjöld managed to get the Egypt to agree to this novelty, that there would be foreign forces placed on the territory of uh, Egypt and being composed of troops from all kinds of parts of the world. Uh, and their only assignment would be just to keep uh, the Suez Canal under control and make sure Israel would not come across the border. Uh, it was a novelty, and Nasser definitely, in his normal mood, the Egyptian leader would not have accepted this unless it was for the persuasive uh, arguments that Hammarskjöld put forward. That this was a way of saving the face of the British and the French who had intervened illegally in, in the Suez. Uh, this was a way of saving their face so that they could withdraw at the same time that it would establish Egyptian control over the Suez Canal. Today, the United Nations is operating 17 such missions today in 2005. In all, there have been 58 such missions done by the United Nations. But it's been a winning concept. Also, other organizations do these kind of operations. Outside the UN, there has been another 67 such peacekeeping operations. That means more than 100, 110 such missions around in the world using the same concept and the same principles that were developed by Hammarskjöld during some hectic nights in November 1956. The record shows that he normally left the office around 2 a.m. in the morning and was back in the office 5 a.m. in the same morning. So during that time he kept his mind cool and was able to formulate principles of a lasting quality. The third aspect I'd like to mention uh, is the role of the Secretariat and the United Nations as such, because often we identify the United Nations with the Secretary General. Hammarskjöld, uh, in an amazing way, managed to enlarge the role. It was not just the Secretary taking notes of what others were saying. This was the Secretary operating in international affairs. And he could do that by relying on Article 99 in the UN Charter. 
which means that the Secretary General has the right to alert the international community to emerging dangers for peace and security. He did that in a very dramatic way in July 1960. This was a crisis in the Congo, a crisis very reminiscent of what we have experienced in the last few years in the Congo. Uh, the first events occur in July 1960. The country is about to fall apart. Uh, the Belgian troops are roaming around. The Congolese, uh, are, um, um, the Congolese soldiers are rebelling against their Belgian leaders. The southern part of uh, the Congo, the most mineral with most of the minerals, Katanga, is declaring itself independent clearly under the auspices of major corporations and Western interests. Uh, the African leaders around in, in the whole continent are worried that this will slow down the entire decolonization. East and West are looking to see who will um, prevail here and what are the interests of East and West in this particular conflict. Hammarskjöld then convenes on his own initiative the Security Council when the crisis has gone on for about two weeks. And he says the international community has to make sure Congo survives as a viable entity. And he demands that peacekeeping operations shall be put in Congo. And indeed, he gets the Security Council to agree. And in no, less, in no more than three days, the first peacekeepers are in place in the Congo. I always found this quite amazing. Uh, when I discussed with um, Swedish military men and asked them how come that when Sweden was sending military troops to Kosovo in, in the Balkans, it took them six months to arrive in the place. And they will explain all the logistics that are necessary and all the contracts that have to be signed, etc., etc. But in 1960, they could do the same thing on a much larger distance with much worse airplanes in three days. It tells us a bit about the political commitment and the political will to make sure that the independence of Africa would survive and that Congo would not be polarized between East and West. Hammarskjöld could in the beginning do this with the support of the major powers and the permanent members of the Security Council. But after a while, it was quite clear that particularly the Soviet Union was getting increasingly upset and felt that Hammarskjöld was uh, running affairs contrary to their own wishes. And in a remarkable, remarkable speech in October 1960, uh, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev demands that Hammarskjöld shall resign and that he shall be replaced by a troika, three secretary generals, one for the East, one for the West, and one for the neutral countries. Of course, that was a way of paralyzing the entire organization when it is having a very difficult operation going on in Congo. And Hammarskjöld, in a remarkable speech, responds to this remarkable demand and says that it is, in Hammarskjöld's words, very easy to resign, but that would leave this organization uh, at, without any leadership. It would mean that this organization which is particularly there to safeguard the interests and the security of the small countries would suddenly be without any kind of instrument. Major countries, he says, they can always survive without an organization. But 
I shall remain in my office as long as the smaller countries want me to stay. And when he has said those words, the whole auditorium breaks out in applause and is a dramatic show of support for Hammarskjöld. The cameras zoom in on Mr. Khrushchev and his foreign minister, Mr. Gromyko, and you can see how they are banging the table with their fists in their way of saying we do not accept what Hammarskjöld is saying. But the demonstration was quite clear. Hammarskjöld had the support of the organization. The Soviet Union did not. He, you can say, saved the organization at that particular crisis. And I think that's another legacy that he leaves for us to ponder. If the international order is going to function, we need an organization that is independent from all the considerations of major powers, which is there to implement, interpret the mandate and the charter in an in a impartial way, without putting regards to particular national interests. The present Secretary General, Kofi Annan, is definitely leading in the organization in that spirit. Uh, and you can look back and find that in the crisis leading up to the war in Iraq in 2003, there was another person acting in the same spirit, the chief inspector for the uh, weapons uh, program, or the, the program to find or localize weapons of mass destruction, the Secretary General and Director of the IAEA, Mr. Mohammed El Baradei, uh, and definitely in that sense, emphasizing that he has maintained the impartiality of the organization, where they have looked at the facts and looked at the accusations and, and followed them up with inspections to see what is right and what is wrong. And I think this is an important part of the legacy of Mr. Hammarskjöld. Of course, next year, 2006, the term of Kofi Annan is expiring, and the world will again start to think about who shall be the next Secretary General. And it's my hope that that process will be much more open than it was when Hammarskjöld was elected. One can even consider whether we should have a secretary general that is elected uh, for five years and then with the possibility of being re-elected for another five years. The first term, the secretary general will constantly look at the possibility of re-election. Brian Urquhart, uh, very knowledgeable person about United Nations, suggested uh, 10 years ago that we should maybe have a Secretary General that has the highest competence and is elected only for one term, and that term would be seven years. That would give that person the kind of autonomy that he or why not she needs to direct the organization in those waters that are difficult these days. Well, there are many ideas, many possibilities and I think the experience of Doug Hammarskjöld give us some insights into the possibilities, also the difficulties. He was greeted to the position as the Secretary General by the outgoing Trygveli that uh, welcome to the most impossible job on earth. Uh, polite as Hammarskjöld always was, he said, thank you for those nice words. <laughs> we'll see who will be the next Secretary General. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you, Peter Wallenstein. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Peter Wallenstein from Uppsala, Sweden, speaking on the legacy of Dag Hammarskjöld and its impact on international relations today. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the co-sponsors of today's forum, the American Swedish Institute and the United Nations Association of Minnesota. We also want to thank all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for our next presentation in just two weeks on Thursday, November 10th, when writer Salman Rushdie will be our guest. Dr. Wallenstein, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has a bit of a theological twist to it. Uh, Desmond Tutu has written a book that, with the title, No Future Without Forgiveness, and theologian and, and ethicist Don Shriver has written a book entitled An Ethic for Enemies, Politics and Forgiveness. Could you comment on, uh, particularly in light of Doug Hammarskjöld's uh, legacy, the notion of forgiveness and reconciliation as being part of international conflict resolution. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a philological seminar, but uh, forgiveness definitely is a, a significant part. Uh, and you can say we have a debate going, uh, approximately like this. After a war, how are we going to look at the situation and the atrocities that took place during the war? Are we going to have a criminal procedure? Uh, now we have an international court uh, dealing with war crimes. I think that is a great achievement. That's one way of trying to bring a certain form of reconciliation, you can say. The facts are being brought out, and often that helps to deal with the situation. Others say, well, let's forget about the past and just move on. And that would be the, a version of forgiveness. I think we need to have something which is a combination here. And Desmond Tutu, of course, was part of that uh, instrument that was created in South Africa, which was truth and reconciliation. We need both these things to move on. Uh, for the European affairs, the fact that the German uh, uh, Chancellor went to Warsaw in 1972 and kneeled in front of the memorial for the Jewish that disappeared uh, during the war was an incredibly important event. I happened to be as a student in Germany at that time, and I noticed that this was not necessarily welcomed by everybody in Germany. But a couple of years later, it was quite clear that this kind of action cleared the air and made, made it possible for Germany to relate to its neighbor in a different way. I would want the Japanese prime minister to do something of the same sort in order to deal with the remnants, the, the, all the fears and all the bad memories that Japanese occupation have left in East Asia. So I think there is a room for this. I think it's an important activity, but uh, we maybe it's not the only thing we need to do to move forward to a peaceful world. What UN reforms are needed today? What are the obstacles to reform? How can we work to overcome these obstacles? Uh, 
probably sounds like another lecture. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I would uh, suggest that if you're really interested, go to the website of the UN and look at this World Summit outcome, as it's called, September 15. It has a full agenda of things to change, and it's very much ideas that have been driven and promoted by Kofi Annan, who wants to use, so to say, his last years as Secretary General to, to shake up the organization. One of the things I mentioned in my speech, and that's the Peace Building Commission. I think that's an important addition to the UN, because it would be a forum where the security thinking of the, uh, the, uh, the UN and the Security Council in particular would merge with the development thinking that you today find in the international financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, and so on. If we are going to create lasting peace, you need to see development and security connected. And this body is one which is going to help us to do that. Uh, much of the reform questions, of course, deal with the composition of the Security Council, uh, where there has been a lot of effort trying to deal with the fact that the council is not necessarily representative for the entire body which it is supposed to direct. Uh, so far that has turned out extremely difficult to find a consensus for a change. I think still that that re should remain on the agenda. We should keep on thinking about how to do it. And maybe not then by adding new permanent members with veto but rather think about ways in which you increase accountability of the Security Council to the world and to the international body itself. And there are many ideas about that, but these are, I think, two, two significant matters. Kofi Annan himself is, of course, very much concerned with the Secretariat and to make sure that it will operate in a competent way. And what you would want is, of course, Secretary-General who could uh, hire and fire fairly freely. And it's one of the proposals, that he would be given a sum of money to release a number of people who are now in the Secretariat in order to be able to recruit new, new people, young people, into the organization. I think that's another measure, less dramatic, but very important for the operation of the Secretariat itself. Question about the appointment of the Secretary-General of the UN. Do you prefer a seven-year appointment? And do you have any uh, names to suggest to the next uh, committee looking for a Secretary General? Yeah, I, I like the idea of just having a, a, a person in for seven years. And just looking at the record, you will see that uh, people in that position get rather tired after about seven years. It is a tough job. And I don't want people to have that kind of experience necessarily. Uh, the push right now is from Asia. One is arguing in Thailand, in Japan, China, India, that it's now time for Asia to have a Secretary General. Uh, I think this is a bit unfortunate uh, because that means that the whole thing becomes part of a sort of a regional politics and not necessarily looking for the most competent person. I would like to see a very open process. In particular, I would actually say that there are a lot of very good women that it would be about time for them to have a chance. Uh, it, <laughs> um, those that are mentioned, uh, which I think have a high, a good record, uh, one is Mary Robinson, who was the former Human Rights Commissioner. Another who is mentioned is the president of Latvia, a small country um, on the Baltic. 
she is uh, uh, associate professor of uh, natural sciences from a university in Canada. She was called back to Latvia as a non-political politician, so to say, and she remains the most uh, respected personality in Latvia. And she is also one able to think in, in rather broad terms about international affairs. So here is another, I think, quite interesting possibility. We have a number of questions, Mr. Wallenstein, about the United States and its relationship in arrears and its payment of uh, its role in participating in the UN and what effect that has on the functioning of the United Nations. Yeah, back in, uh, after September 11, uh, the U.S. realized the significance of, this, of the United Nations and actually tried to clear up and, and paid back uh, what the U.S. defined as the debt that it had. It didn't correspond with the UN definition of what that debt was, but uh, anyway, it was a positive gesture. Uh, uh, and it's a bit sad that this continues to be a matter, because we are talking about very small money. This is a very tiny organization by any standards. Uh, you can just go to Manhattan and you will see that this is a building with 38 floors, and there are quite a number of others which are much larger and definitely have much more money. That gives you an indication. We are not talking about much money. Uh, so I think that the financial issue is actually a, a pretext. The real problem here is to get the commitment to the, to the UN. And the United States was very committed uh, and could build on a traumatic uh, and experience that was shared. The September 11 was really a shared experience. I myself was in New Zealand when it happened, and you could see the New Zealander getting very anxious about the whole event. So it was definitely there. Uh, and. Um, the intervention and the war in Afghanistan could build on that consensus. And I find it extraordinary that that consensus could be destroyed so quickly and so effectively, particularly by the focus on the Iraq issue, which is not related, basically, to the terrorism issue at all. So um, instead of capitalizing on that incredible consensus and support, sympathy, in order to develop a good international program on, on terrorism, uh, which were both long-term and short-term. Uh, I think much of that was destroyed by going into the Iraq situation. What, what advice would you offer the current administration about the United Nations and peacekeeping? Well, it's always struck me that uh, the American troops uh, are trained for war fighting. Uh, so they're not necessarily a peacekeeping training, and, and you would require actually peacekeeping. And peacekeeping is, when you think about it, it's more like uh, the police who operate in the neighborhood. You develop confidence with the, the people, and that's how you get informed, and that's how you see where the troubles are, and that's how you can uh, and, and deal with the troubles, and you create confidence. The American approach, I must say, uh, that they have chosen is, is much more what one calls a robust one, which means you come in with the overwhelming force and, of course, you create peace that way too. People become terrified and worried, but it's, it doesn't last longer than the troops are around, and then they move out and, and you're back to, to the previous situation. So I think there is a lot here to, to learn about peacekeeping. Or you could say, maybe we could have a division of labor. Maybe the U.S. could be the one doing sort of this kind of rapid intervention under a UN mandate. The European Union could be the one dealing with the actual peacekeeping. Uh, so you, you could develop things here. But definitely I think there's a lot, lot to learn and see the difference between war fighting and, and peacekeeping. 
What specifically can the United Nations do to gain a good reputation once again when so many, quote, peacekeepers have been ineffective in keeping local citizens safe or even worse, have participated in atrocities? Uh, yeah, these are, are really bad events in, in, in the Congo and uh, definitely this has to be cleared out. Uh, the problem here is that it is an international organization and, and it is composed of uh, troops from different nationalities and they are actually not under international law, they are un under the national law. And it turns out, of course, that uh, the, the views on sexual violence and so on is, differs among countries. And the, tr the troops that have been involved in many of the atrocities, this is not regarded as a crime in their own country. So in a way, you need to promote legislation around the world which is more equal and, and uh, definitely takes up gender issues uh, seriously everywhere, not just in, in some few European countries. So I think there is a need for development. But I would say there is a new report that came out uh, three days ago uh, from uh, the neighbor to the north from Canada, called the Human Security Report. Uh, it's also worthwhile downloading from the net. Uh, and it shows that the amount of conflict that we have today is actually less than it was 15 years ago. The armed conflict have decreased, the number of people killed in, directly killed in wars are less, the number of refugees are actually less. There's a number of surprising pieces of information that you get in this report and they connect it to the fact that the international community in general and the United Nations in particular has responded to this crisis but an amazing number of peacekeeping operations and num number of peace processes that have been initiated participating in peace agreements using sanctions to uh, bring about change in particular countries and all that this report is arguing has actually an impact, but it's an impact that we don't see. It's not spectacular, but you see it in the reduction of, of uh, conflicts around in the world. Uh, I know these data quite well, and I would say this is absolutely accurate, but it's very hard to get that picture into the media, that we have fewer wars today than we had 15 years ago. It doesn't make news. You, know, you want the wars that go on today, they make news. So I think we should have a broader perspective when we try to evaluate whether the UN is effective or not. A number of questions address the US-led uh, war in Iraq. Uh, let me summarize them by asking, what is your recommendation for winding down American intervention in Iraq, or how do you see that uh, conflict concluding? Well, I don't see it concluding, uh, and that's my problem. Uh, I think it has rested on a very faulty analysis of what Iraq is all about. Uh, and uh, it was rather shocking to discuss also with uh, representatives from the U.S. State Department, uh, where most people would say, well, we know already that this country is divided in these three parts, the Kurds, the Shiites, the Sunnis. And if you just break down the state structure, these are the ones that are going to be strong. And you are going to get the game that we now get, have constantly between these three. And you can say, well, uh, there is a new constitution. I'm, I'm in very happy to see that new constitution in place. But if you do not have the, the Sunni section along, they are 20%, you could say majority, 80% should rule. But if you have a big group like that, 20%, that is enough to maintain a conflict for a very long period of time. And you can make parallels. The Tamils in Sri Lanka are about 20% of the population. That war has gone on for 20 years. 
the Catholic minority in Northern Ireland is about 30 or worse, about 30, 35 percent. That was enough to keep on the conflict going. So you don't get rid of it by just saying we have a constitution that is generally accepted. You have to do something specifically to incorporate also the, the Sunnis into the process. And I think that's the key. It's a political process that needs to be developed where they are integrated into the framework. And perhaps that will require uh, an international effort. Maybe it requires the United Nations, European Union and others to be involved in a credible way. And it would mean that the United States would have to go to these places, to the, to the UN, to the European Union, and say, okay, uh, we, are, uh, we are in need of you to help us out here. And, uh, and then you can maybe create confidence that the, the, the American administration is serious about it, and you can get some change, perhaps. But it's a difficult question. Considering the unrest that exists now in many formerly colonized lands or nations created artificially by the West, is it practical or worth it to discuss the possibility of remapping these former lands to reflect more natural tribal boundaries? How would the UN facilitate that? I think this is a, a non-starter. To start to change borders will just create new problems. And whenever you draw a border, you will divide some people. People don't live where borders go. So the best, I think, is instead to do the reverse. That is to make the borders increasingly obsolete, that you get cooperation across the borders. And you can think about that in terms of regional cooperation, regional communities. Uh, you can think about it in, in, uh, in larger settings. I think the European Union provides a very interesting example of how you can gradually minimize the significance of the borders without people losing their identities. And um, in Africa, we have now something called the African Union. It's uh, replacing the previous body. And it is very much into these ideas, how to stimulate regional cooperations, which would mean that the borders do not appear as hard as they often uh, have been so far. And if you have a hard border, course you get more frightened and you don't want to you know that that border will be more of your problem if you have your key and keen on the other side uh, but if it is a softer border uh, maybe relationships are easier to develop so I'm in favor of a solution which is more looking at regional cooperation rather than raising the whole issue of borders itself in the conflict with Iraq it seems that the United States may have relied upon a policy of preventive war he referred to Doug Hammarskjöld having invented the policy of preventive diplomacy. Are there places in the world today where the United Nations is practicing effective preventive diplomacy? Uh, let me give you one example, which I <clears throat> think we can all follow in the media in the, in the coming days, and, and that's Liberia, a small country on the west coast of Africa, created by freed slaves from the United States. Uh, the capital is called Monrovia, in order to honor Mr. Monroe, former president. Um, this country has been exposed to civil wars for the last 20 years, basically. Uh, and finally, there is a process, very strongly supported by the United Nations, with peacekeeping operations, but also with sanctions, so that the economy cannot develop and become a resource for continued war. About two weeks ago, they had elections, 22 candidates, two uh, got the most votes, and they are going to run against each other on November 8. 
these are people which are not connected with the previous war. One is a soccer player, you would say in the US, a football player. He lives in Florida. His name is George Wee. He's a multimillionaire, uh, and he has played football all his life and not been part of the war. He is, of course, a hero among many of the young people that were previously child soldiers, uh, deadly soldiers in Liberia. He's about 33 or 35 years old. The other candidate is a woman, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She's 66. She is a former economist in the World Bank. And she is saying that the men has messed up this country. Now it's time for the women to sort it out. <laughs> and if you look at these two candidates, you can say one can play football, the other one can count. Maybe you could get a good merger if you get them to go together. But that will be decided in the elections. And this is the way I think one with peacekeeping, with sanctions, with international participation actually can reverse, hopefully reverse a trend that we have seen not only in Liberia but all over Africa. So this example is extremely interesting and it will be a way of building peace and preventing conflict for the future. But of course that means that we International, the international community has to be engaged also after this election. We should not just you know, be happy that they got a new president, but also support that new president to continue the positive trends that we see. One of the places of conflict in the world, which actually was in conflict during Doc Hammarskjöld's leadership at the United Nations, is the Middle East. Uh, did Hammarskjöld have any ideas uh, about how to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And uh, do you have any ideas today that perhaps would be new? Yeah, th this is a sad, sad situation. If you look at the, the Millennium Development Goals that are presented, there, there are two regions in the world which are not going towards the achievement of better development conditions by 2015. This is the goals that the poverty should be halved, more people should have education, etc. Most parts of the world are moving in that direction, except um, the area south of the Sahara in Africa, and the Middle East. I would say that the Middle East is actually a, a crisis region, and we tend to look at the little two uh, in, in separate. Here's the Palestine issue, here's the Kurdish issue, here is Iraq, here is the oil, etc., etc. We have to see the totality of this situation. Then you will see it's an area with high unemployment among young people. High unemployment among young people is one of the typical causes of problems. These are the people that will be recruited into various groups. Uh, the position of women is actually going backwards in the whole region. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a region with an incredible amount of money, because oil resources and oil, we all know, the oil price is bringing in a lot of money. And nothing of that is basically invested in the region. So I would like to see a program uh, in, in the Middle East, which will be a little like the Marshall Aid that Hammarskjöld was involved in when you reconstructed, when they reconstructed Europe after the Second World War. A broad-based program run uh, on, on, on reasonable terms to try to change the whole dynamics in this region. And out of that, I think, we'll follow some possibilities of settlement. You change the atmosphere, you change the mentality, you change the resources available for peace building. Another question about Hammarskjöld himself and his untimely demise. Was his death an accident or was he removed because he was an inconvenience to both East and West during the height of the Cold War? 
Yeah, he definitely was an inconvenience, um, but from that does not follow that the plane was shot down or had a bomb on board. Uh, I've been to the crash site, which is in uh, northern Zambia today, uh, and when you look at the situation and when you see it, you will see that the airport is a little down here, and there is a hill going up a little like this. Now the plane is coming in, this is midnight, this is in the middle of Africa, the equipments in the airport are not really very uh, developed. Uh, the pilots have been flying for about four or five hours uh, to reach this point. Uh, it seemed to me quite plausible that the plane comes in a little too low and then it will hit exactly the place where it crashed. Final, so, a final so I, question. Yeah. So I, I, my conclusion is it was an accident of the kind that shouldn't happen. Okay. Final question with a short answer. What do you suggest those of us who are interested in supporting peace in the world what we, what we might do to encourage peace, the development of peace. Quick answer, this should be good. Quick answer. Uh, join the peace organization of your choice. Good, that's a good answer. <laughs>